Please take out your Bibles tonight and be turning to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans 16. Tonight's lesson is going to serve as a natural follow-up or a further illustration or application of the truths that we discussed in this morning's sermon, particularly regarding the importance of the Bible as God's only exclusive spiritual seed or spiritual outline or spiritual blueprint. Only tonight we're going to talk about that in one particular area, and that is when it comes to the one biblical church, which God places and finds his saved people living and serving in. We're going to do this in a sermon entitled, The Attributes of Christ's Church, Its Divine Origin, Its Eternal Destination. And while most of the elements will be taken from the book of Ephesians, we are going to start with a passage in Romans. Let me tell you, before we begin, when we are discussing the attributes of Christ's church, that is exactly what I mean, the attributes of Christ's church. Just for clarification's sake, what I am talking about is that church that we read about in the scriptures. Starting in Romans chapter 16 and verse 16, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are, who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Secondly, let me tell you what I am most assuredly not talking about in this lesson. I am not talking about any church found outside of the pages of Scripture. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church that was established in the mid-300s by Constantine in Rome, nearly 300 years after the apostles laid down the terms of entrance and admission and taught about the one church that Christ established. I am not talking about the Lutheran denomination or division that was established in 1517 by Martin Luther and his followers in Germany. I'm not talking about the Episcopal Church division or denomination that was started by King Henry VIII in 1534 AD in England. Not talking about the Presbyterian denomination established by John Calvin in Switzerland in 1536. I'm not talking about the Congregational denomination established by Robert Brown in England in 1550. Not talking about the Baptist denomination that was started in 1607 by John Smith in Holland. Not talking about the Methodist denomination established by John Wesley in England in 1790. Nor am I talking about any other cult or creation or man-made division or deviation or denomination that's come along in the past 500 years. Again, what we are talking about when we are talking about the church in the Bible is exactly that, Christ's church, as we see it in the Bible. Many of today's religious world might say, well, wait a minute, aren't all of the churches and 
all of those different religious groups, be it if they were established three days ago in Albuquerque or 10 years ago in Texas or you know, 500 years ago by some of these men you mentioned, aren't, aren't they all just different parts or portions of the one church or body of Christ that we see in the scriptures? And that, that question comes up and people think that way. And the answer is absolutely positively no. No. Let me illustrate it this way. In 1767, 255 years ago, there was a man by the name of John Spilsbury, not Pillsbury like the doughboy, but Spilsbury with an S on front. He was a teacher, an engraver, and a map maker, map maker in England. He is the man who's credited with making the very first jigsaw puzzle ever made. He made it for the purpose of teaching geography. What he would do is he would attach his maps to flat hardwood, then he'd use a fine saw to cut along the borders of the European countries and the jigsaw puzzle came into existence. That's what he would do. Hand painted and made of wood, the puzzle was a map. Each country was a separate piece. Students learned their geography lessons by putting the maps back together. It was a teaching tool, it was an educational tool. That was what the first jigsaw puzzle was, okay? This idea caught on until about 1820, jigsaw puzzles remained primarily educational tools. That was their purpose. Please remember for our purposes later in this lesson, the jigsaw puzzle was originally created with a, by a specific person, John Spilsbury, created in a specific way, which we've covered, at a specific time, 1767, for a specific purpose teaching. That was the original jigsaw puzzle. However, people soon began putting pictures on them. Their purpose was to entertain rather than to teach. The pieces in these early jigsaw puzzles were not interlocking, not until the invention of power tools more than a century later did jigsaw puzzles with fully interlocking pieces come along. Towards the end of the 19th century, they began to use plywood for these puzzles. With the illustrations glued down or, or painted on the front of the plywood, pencil tracings of where to cut were made on the back. It's my understanding that on some of the older puzzles still in existence today, you can see some of those markings. Later on, in the late 1800s, cardboard puzzles were first introduced, were primarily used for children's puzzles. By the early 1900s, both wood and cardboard jigsaw puzzles were available. Wooden puzzles were still primarily sold because companies believed that nobody buy cheap cardboard puzzles. Yeah, that didn't work so well, did it? The popularity of the jigsaw puzzles has fluctuated since the 1930s. They are still available in both wood and cardboard. They are still, this article said, a lot of entertainment a lot of entertainment for a small price. Some might wonder why I take the time at the beginning of a gospel sermon to trace the outline of a jigsaw puzzle. What that has to do with the Lord's church. What, what, what could the two possibly have in common? But I think some of you are probably already ahead of me. The similarities are striking. Think about it. Originally, the jigsaw puzzle was made for a specific purpose, to educate. But years later, it became simply nothing more than something to entertain. 
Through the years since the original jigsaw puzzle was brought into existence by its creator, many others in many other countries with many other methods and materials have created countless other jigsaw puzzles with little, if any, resemblance whatsoever in either design, purpose, price, or appearance to the original. Sound familiar? The parallels are easy to see with the fact that the church had a divine purpose. The church was brought, the Lord's church was brought into existence by God, who had purposed it since before the beginning of time. And it had a specific purpose. It's where the saved were put to be further educated. And the Lord's church came into existence in a specific place at a specific time, all in accordance with what God had said in the Old Testament, as we'll see here in a few minutes. Unfortunately, church today, there's been a lot of people in a lot of countries and a lot of places that have come up with a lot of churches that are not in the Bible, whose primary intent and purpose today is to entertain. And I want you to think about this. How many of you have ever put together a jigsaw puzzle of at least 2,000 pieces? Raise your hand, 2,000 pieces. Okay? They're big. That's a lot of pieces. <laughs> Especially if they're small and your eyes are bad, okay? Now, consider this. What would you think, and if you've never put one together, as apparently the majority haven't, if, if you've never put one together, think about, you know, it's quite an undertaking, 2,000 pieces, but how many of you would buy two, three, five, ten, maybe, 2,000 piece jigsaw puzzles and mix all the pieces together? I want you to think about that. What if I said to you, carrying that one step further, that you could take every jigsaw puzzle ever created since 1767, take all of those billions, trillions of different pieces, of all those different and various subjects made of all of those different various materials, whether wood, cardboard, plastic, whatever, and you could mix all those shapes and sizes and colors and pieces together in one giant place, maybe like in a two-mile square area, nothing but jigsaw piece puzzles, uh, jigsaw puzzle pieces, I can say that. And you were to mix them all together, 10 stories, 20 stories, I don't know how much space it would take, but it's just this large, section of land with every piece that ever was, and what if I were to tell you then that you could take every one of those pieces from all those puzzles, that you could put them all together in one perfect, flawless puzzle that made sense, because after all, I would say, all those different puzzles made by all those different people in all those different places since 1767 are really just part of the original puzzle, so it would all make one perfect picture. Does that make sense to anybody? can't make sense, does it? Why? Because they're not all part of the original. They're not all part of the original. They didn't come from the original. The original creator of the jigsaw puzzle did not have all of those. You can't put them all together so they make sense. Some of us might not be able to, with our eyes the way they are, put together 2,000 pieces one that makes sense, right? So the same is true of the church. God the original creator of his son's church made it exactly the way he wanted it. Its purpose, its design, its price, God took care of it all. He said, here it is. 
And so tonight as we talk about that, how something so special and so unique with such an incredibly exclusive design and divine origin and eternal destination, we're not talking about any of those, those man-made cheaper variations later on. Those, those puzzles, those churches, if you will, that are never seen in scripture because God told us all about the one that he created. So we're going to begin tonight with attributes of Christ's church. It's divine origin. It's eternal destination. I've been a Christian since 1985. And I don't think I still understand the absolute fullness. Despite all the lessons and the studies and all the, th I, I, all the sermons I've heard, I still don't believe that I understand in 37 years of Christianity the fullness of what it means to be a part of something that is eternal. A part of something that was so special God gave his son's blood for it. A part of something that God had in his mind before he ever laid the foundations of the earth. I'm part of that. And so are you if you're in Christ. But I still don't think I get the full implication. So I want to I share some things about this tonight, about the, the, the Lord's Church's divine origin and eternal destination from the book of Ephesians. For those of you who are taking notes, just some things to consider. The word church occurs nine times in the book of Ephesians. The word church occurs nine times. It occurs in chapters 1, 3, and 5, which includes our central centerpiece or, or central text of tonight's sermon, which when we get there will be Ephesians 3 and verse 10. Before we get there, I also want to continue with a few numbers just to get you a little bit more acquainted with Ephesians. While the word church occurs nine times, the word body in the book of Ephesians, referring to the same institution, occurs another nine times. And the word kingdom in the book of Ephesians occurs once. That means that the total amount of references, church, which is the body, which is the kingdom, all talking about the same institution, all of those in this little five-chapter book together occur 19 total times in just six short verses, making the epistle to the Ephesians probably the single most concentrated source of information on the eternal attributes of Christ's church in the entire New Testament epistle record. Ephesians chapter 3, if you'd follow along with me, beginning at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. This mystery that he's talking about, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul says to me who am less, verse 8, than the least of all the saints 
This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable. That means you can't get to the bottom of it. The unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. In this passage, the Apostle Paul mentions the word mystery three times. He mentions the word mystery six times in the entire epistle to the Ephesians, six chapters, six times. This mystery is one that God had in place from the beginning of the ages when he created all things through Christ. Verse 9. Consider with me for a moment an author of a mystery novel. An author of a mystery novel gets an idea, and he knows before he starts writing the general outline of what he wants the story to be. He knows the general plot, right? He knows, you know, you see some of these TV shows, you read some of these books, and, and the first three quarters of the show or the first three quarters of the book is, is used to paint this portrait of how terrible things are. People have gotten into trouble. You don't know how the mystery is going to come out. You don't know how it's all going to work out. But the author knows. That's why they, they, they will put these little clues in there that you think back after you find out how the mystery is solved and say, oh, I should have seen that coming because he said back, you know, back here in chapter 2, I missed that. Or some actor in a, in a show or a movie will, will make this little one-liner statement that later on, after you've got everything figured out, you say, oh, yeah, I should have known that because well, God did the same thing. God had this, this plan in place, but it was a mystery to us. God had this plan in place way back before he ever created the world through Christ Jesus, John 1, 3. And this church was part of that plan. This church, the church of Christ, was part of that plan. And he knew it. It was a mystery to us, but God knew it. And, and looking back through the Old Testament, some of these Jews is... is maybe on the day of Pentecost or thereafter, could look back. You know how sometimes it says the apostles, then the apostles remembered that while Jesus was here, he said, he gave us a clue. We should have known this. Well, some of these Jews and some of these churches had to have thought, well, well, wait a minute. Yeah, the Old Testament scripture, that was a clue. It said this was going to happen. Yeah, okay, that's how this works. God did that continually, and that's the mystery that Paul's talking about. What were some of the elements of this divine plan that God had in place. Well, if we would notice here in chapter 3 and verse 6, obviously Christ, obviously, the gospel, and the fact that the Gentiles, here, here's, here's part of that, that main plot that God had in plan when he started, started with all of creation. Part of one of the elements, part of the, the plot here, if you will, or the plan or, or the mystery was this, that the Gentiles would have the same exact opportunity to be saved and belong to God as the Jews. We see that again in chapter 3 and verse 6. But they would be saved and they'd have the same opportunity to be saved in what? In the same body. So it says in verse 6. That same body, which Paul says earlier in this epistle, is the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 3. Here's the thing that, I know we know it, but when you hear it sometimes, or at least for me, when I hear it put into words, it, it, it clicks. It makes more sense. Here, here's something. Don't miss this. This church, 
the Church of Christ. This church that we read about in the scripture. This church was just as much an integral part of God's eternal plan for mankind as Jesus Christ coming to earth was a part of that plan. Don't, don't, don't lose that. We all know that the whole plan of God was to send Christ to redeem us, right? But as part of that same plan and just as much a part of it was to establish his church. If Jesus comes and dies for us, but he doesn't save us and, and, and save us all in one spot, there is no plan. You can't have the church without Jesus, is that right? But you can't have Jesus without the church either because he's the head of the body and you can't separate the two. Where the head is, the body is, if, if the church is living. It's all part of the same plan. The church of Christ is as much a part of God's eternal plan, which he purposed before the beginning, as sending Jesus was a part of that plan. Just as much. We would note that when we read verses 8 through 11 of chapter 3, which say, Do I want to start in 8? No, we'll start in verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. The existence of the church. The church's having been brought into existence and now being in existence was the crowning touch on this plan. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, watch this, according to the eternal purpose. The church was part of that eternal purpose. The church was part of that eternal plan. This church, the church of Christ, the Lord's church, the blood-bought church, the church of the scripture. That was part of the eternal purpose. It's all in the same sentence, verses 10 and 11, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I still cannot get my mind around what it means to be a part of what we're reading about. This is incredible. This is incredible. Sometimes we read it over this, this, without giving it too much thought. I would also note that one of the things that we see in the book of Ephesians, I just said to you, the plan included sending Jesus, but just as much establishing the church as sending Jesus, right? Okay? One of the things that we would note in the book of Ephesians, is that you'll often see where the church is mentioned, Jesus is mentioned right there with it. You'll see that they're inseparable. You'll see that the church is just as important as Jesus. Jesus is just as important as the church. Church doesn't exist without Jesus. Jesus doesn't accomplish anything without the church. They, they, they often occur together. Matter of fact, if you look at all nine occurrences of the word church in chapters one, three, and five, you will always see Jesus inseparably linked, inseparably linked to the existence of his church. People today want Christ without his church, can't have it. I'm sure I've used this illustration before and I'm sure I've used parts of, of, of these other uh, illustrations before as well, but, but it's like Karen's coffee and I use Karen's coffee because I drink mine pretty much black, but Karen in her coffee in the morning. Instant coffee, Cremora, little honey. When you mix that up, you can't unmix it. Once it's all coffee, Cremora, and honey, 
You can't, you can't all of a sudden, you know what I'm gonna, I think, don't think I want the cremora in there, I'm gonna take it out. Good luck. It's inseparable. Well, I don't think that little dash of honey in there I want in there, I think I'll take it out. You can't do that after it's melted. It's, it's part of it. Jesus and his church, you can't take one out of the other. They're inseparably linked, they're part of each other. That's why in the book of Ephesians, when you have the word church listed nine times, you'll always see Jesus right there in the immediate context and flow as being a part of that or the reason for it or something to do with it. Let's, let's take a, a look here at some of the jewels in Ephesians. Start in chapter one and, and verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. First thing we see is the eternal nature of the plan in verse four, before the foundation of the world. Four times in those six verses I just read, he refers to those who are in Christ. They're in the beloved, they're in Christ. That was the whole purpose of the eternal plan. That was the whole goal before he even laid the foundations of the earth. That he would save a people through the blood of Christ and put them into this blood-bought, blood-cleansed, blood-redeemed, New Testament saved group known as his church so they could spend eternity with him. In verses 7 through 10, it reads as follows. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is something you and I got. Listen, this isn't something we're going to get. In him we have redemption. You tonight, if you are in Christ, have redemption. Do you know what that means? You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You don't have any sins on record in heaven. If you were to go home to heaven tonight, there's not a sin on your record any more than there was on Jesus. Isn't that incredible? You have that redemption tonight. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery. Here it goes again. Paul started right out with it. He, he's talking about that mystery he'd explained further in chapter 3. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This eternal plan of God's was all about bringing us together in Christ, in his church, in his kingdom, as Paul would write in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. If we were to read here in Ephesians 1, 11 through 13, we would see all about God's eternal purpose once again and, and how to become a, a member of that saved group, that church, of the living God by listening to the gospel and trusting it, therefore being cleansed and forgiven of our sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is an absolute guarantee, which he also mentions here, straight from God, who will give 
that to all who will remain faithful in him. If we move on in Ephesians 1, and I wish I had time to just, just keep going and read all this, but I don't, and I hope you will. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul says, I, I pray that somehow you, my brethren, can, can come to understand the absolutely priceless privilege that God has given you to be a part of this group. Paul says to his Ephesian brethren that were cleansed by the blood just the same as you and me, I, I, I just pray that, that somehow you, your eyes could be open, that you could understand the fullness of what it means to be a part of this blood-bought body or church of Christ which God promised and prophesied and purchased and pardoned and established and which we know he put into existence in 33 AD. And the word went forth from Jerusalem Paul says, I want you to understand what it means to be a part of this, this eternal blood-bought group, this church that belongs to Christ. It wears his name. It is brought, bought by his blood. And it's often referred to with terminology that reflects that ownership as the slide we saw this morning talks about the church of Christ, the church of God. That one New Testament church which serves as the bride of Christ, which we'll see in chapter five, and over which his son reigns supreme, as we read about in chapter one, verses 15 through 23. Chapter two recaps and explains that plan, that mystery, that, that purpose that God put in place, how once the Gentiles were lost, but, but now in Christ we can be saved, and, and he sent Jesus to do that very thing, to bring near those of us who were far off through the blood so that now we're fellow citizens and saints in the household of God. And he talks about that and recaps in chapter 2. And that brings us back to chapter 3, where God's eternal purpose, verse 11, is seen in the establishment of the crowning touch of that plan, which is the church, that everybody might, be, might know by the existence of the church, that this, this wisdom of God might be made known by the church because the church has now come. And you know what Paul does? <laughs> you know what he does for the second time in this, in this little, little six-chapter book? You know what he does? He said, boy, I pray for you. He just said that in chapter 1. Now he's telling him again. He says, for this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I just want you to know and I want you to understand what it means to be a part of what you're a part of. Again. And again and again. Listen. Any religious person who does not understand that there is something incredibly, infinitely special and priceless about being in, in this church that we read about in the scripture, this church that cost God the blood of his son, and anybody that does not understand how much more important and special it is to be a part of this church, not, not because I'm a part of it or because you're a part of it, we're just people, but, but this church because this is the one God had in his plan before the beginning, the one that the Bible talks about right here. Any religious person that does not understand it needs to be prayed for and studied with. Any person who, who does not understand how special that is as compared to being a part of some cheap imitation that has come along since. You can go into one of these dollar specialty stores and you can buy a jigsaw puzzle for a buck. 
Do you suppose if you had one of the originals by John Spilsbury, it would cost you a little more than a buck? You can go to Washington, D.C., and in the gift stores, you can buy these little scrolls of the Declaration of Independence, these little papers for, I don't know, with inflation, they're probably three or four dollars now. Do you think that those are as costly as the original? Listen, the original Declaration of Independence, I mean the original, not a copy, the original. Would you rather have what that would cost, or would you rather have what one of those little limitations would cost? We're not part of one of the little limitations. We're part of the one we see right here in Ephesians, and it is such an incredible, incredible thing. It's more than coming to church, brethren. The Lord's church was here 2,000 years before you were. And it'll be here until the Lord comes to take it home. Isn't that incredible? And you're part of it if you're in Christ. It, we, we would see the eternal nature of the church when we read Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It says there, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus. How long? To all generations, forever and ever. God is going to get the glory in the church through Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. What does that tell you? It tells you the church is going to exist forever and ever. Now, it's not going to exist on earth forever and ever, but this group of saved people is going to exist forever and ever because when the end comes, God's coming to take us home, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. There's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that we could go to to talk about the origin of the Lord's church. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 told about how the Lord's church would come to pass in the latter days and how the, mountains of, the mountain of the Lord's church would be established, be established on top of the mountains, how it would be exalted above the hills, how all the nations would flow to it, and how when that happened, the law would proceed forth, forth from Zion. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. The church was established. The word of the Lord proceeded forth from Jerusalem. The church had come. We can go back and read in Daniel chapter 2 about how the God of heaven would establish a kingdom, verses 40 through 44, during the days of the Roman Empire that would never end. And we know that Christ echoed that very sentiment when he came in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, when he said, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Nothing will overcome his church. It is his kingdom. It's that church that we're a part of. But by the same token, any church not opened up by the Apostle Peter is not that church. Any church not originally established in Jerusalem when the word of the Lord went forth from Jerusalem in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures is not that church. Any church not honoring what Peter bound by the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins is not that church. Because we got the pattern right here. I want us to consider in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33, just briefly, Christ is once again seen as inseparable from his church, intimate, one with his church, the church of Christ, just as a husband is to be with his wife, according to the plan and purpose of God as well. If we were to turn to Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, we would notice that the church, 
verse 25, was loved so much by Jesus, she was worth his blood, his death on the cross for her. We would notice in verse 26 of Ephesians 5 how he washes and cleanses and sets his church apart or sanctifies her with his word. We would notice in verse 27 that he preserves her as a holy and glorious church without spot or wrinkle or blemish in his eyes. And that means every member, by the way, not just the church as a whole, but each individual. You are, if you're in Christ and you're walking in the light, you are preserved blameless, spotless before God. That still blows my mind. I don't know what you've done, but I know me, and I know I've sinned. To be able to take my last breath and be preserved spotless and blameless on the day of judgment, all because of God's grace, and to be a part of that group is mind-boggling. But it's true, because God said so. Church of Christ is the bride of Christ, as we said, Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 33. And Jesus is looking forward to his wedding day. We read about that in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Matter of fact, I'm going to take the time to read that. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me, would you please? Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I know it is symbolic. I know this is what John saw in his vision. But I want to read to you what John saw. It's so incredible. He said, I saw a new heaven, Revelation 21, verse 1, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe every, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, praise God, I can't wait for that day. Nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. In that text right there, we see the absolute guaranteed assurance of the eternal existence of this one New Testament body or bride or church of Christ, which we see planned and purposed and purchased and established and originated and brought into existence in the scriptures by none other than God himself. Those are some of the eternal attributes of what you are a part of tonight, if you are in Christ. Those are some of the eternal attributes of the church of Christ, the only church on the planet with such a divine design, designer, origin, originator, and eternal duration. It is the one true and only church on the planet that has such promises and prophecies and guarantees. I want to make one thing clear before I offer the invitation. 
Hear me loud and clear. I don't say that just to defend the church I'm a part of. Everybody thinks their church is right. My thoughts on that, my opinions on that are no more valuable than anybody else's part of any church. Everybody thinks church you're a part of is, is, is it. It's not because I'm a part of it I say that. You know why I say what I've said tonight? Because that's what God said. That's God's plan. I'm just, by the grace of God, privileged and honored to be able to be a part of it because of what God said and showed me, yeah, Doug, you can be a part of this. If you'll obey the gospel, if you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, I'll add you to that church. That's the only reason I'm here. I'm not here because I'm a good guy. I'm here because God's an incredible God. I'm not here because I don't make mistakes. I'm here because God doesn't make mistakes. I'm not telling you about my church. I'm telling you about God's church, the one in the book. The only question you have to answer this evening is, are you a part of that church, his church, the Lord's church, the church of Christ that we see in the scriptures, the church that the apostles went to, the church that the apostles were part of, the church that the apostles worked in, the church that the apostles worshiped in, almost 2,000, that church, the church that's right here in the book, because there's only one way into that church. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus told Peter exactly what to say on the day of Pentecost. Peter outlined exactly how to become part of that church. You've got you to you believe the message just like they did. We read it this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. You've got to hear that message and understand that you've sinned. You've got to believe that Jesus is the answer to that sin. You've got to be willing to repent, to turn to God is what that means. And you've got to be willing to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter laid down for terms of entrance into that church. I, I don't know what some other churches lay down for, for entry rules or fellowship. I don't care. All I care about, and I mean no disrespect, but all I care about is what God said. Is that fair? And God, through Peter, said, this is how you accept my gift. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you, to all your children, for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call to himself. And with these and many other words he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, verse 41, were baptized. They knew that they wanted to be in a part of this eternal institution known as the Lord's Church. Do you? If you do tonight and you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of those sins, why not? Maybe you need further Bible study, we'd be glad to do that. But to all of you who've done those things, I hope and I pray Tonight, you've gotten just a little bit more insight what it means to come together and be a part of the church in the book, the church of Christ. Would you be a part of it tonight, or do you need the prayers of that church? Please come to the front as we stand and sing.